0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Lubbock, Texas, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Lubbock, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Lubbock. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. All right. So real estate investing shocks. I'm James Orr. So how this class came about. So um, I had a client, uh, real estate broker, real estate brokerage client. Uh, they were under contract to buy a new construction property and they've been under contract for a long time. I'll show you the actual dates in there. Um, some new construction, and this was an example of that, had an exceptionally long period where you're waiting for the property to be built. So in this particular case, they went under contract and the builder said, your property is gonna be worth wor- uh, worked on and finished in whatever it was, six months from now or something like that. So they were too far out for them to reasonably pay a fee to lock their interest rates, because when you lock interest rates more than a certain number of 60 days or something in advance, you're, you're a lender, right? So 60 days in advance, then it's much more expensive to pay for that lock, and there's usually a premium on that interest rate, it's not like you get that best rate if you lock it within 60 days you get the best rate if you lock it more than 60 days uh, there's usually a cost to it or sometimes there's a cost to it and usually the rate's a little bit worse and so they were like hey it's six months out rates are really low let's see if they'll go down i mean there's always that like chance that they'll possibly go down because they've been going down for so long uh, but they did not lock their rate so um what happened was they got within 60 days of closing, the builder calls on and say, Hey, look, we're about 60 days out. You should probably lock your financing. At that point, they called their lender to lock the rate and they were like shocked. They like called me almost in distress. Like, Hey, uh, we may not be able to buy this property because it's way, way worse than it was. And so that's what we're going to look at. So this is where this is historical interest rates and where they went under contract. So this is going all the way back to probably like 1970 or so. You can see rates were at 7.5. They kind of went up in the early 80s to whatever this was, 18 and a half or so. Kind of came down all through the 2000s, all through this. And then by the time they got and went under contract, they were not at all-time lows. You know That was probably 2021 or whatever it is, according to this chart. It, It kind of went up from there, went down a little bit. But it had gone up the tiniest bit. And so when they went under contract, they were at this little mini peak. And so there was almost a thought of, well, maybe rates will go down, right? I'm not going to lock right now. They've been a lot lower within the last couple of years. Maybe they're going to go down. But if you look back historically, this was like ridiculously low. And, and part of what this class is going to go over is this idea of understanding history and understanding like probability of what are the chances this is going to happen to me and what could happen to me. And so if you look back over this, you can see, that there is a chance that they could have been really, really ugly, right? The chance of it going back up to 17 18%, pretty low. But you know, it's been in this five range for a long time. I mean, definitely above five for a, quite a while. So for them to think that it was going to go low, maybe, but could also have gone a lot higher. And that's what happened. So this is when they went under contract, at this little point right here. This is when they were closing. And so you can see the rates had gone up quite a bit beforehand, and the rates were much, much higher. Um, on the next slide, I'll show you what the actual numbers were and the actual dates. But you could just see visually how this happened, right? And how this was a shock to people. And there's a couple people in this room that, are, that experience this real time where they had something like this happen. They were about to buy a property. You were living in the property, at least one of you guys were living in the property with an option to buy it and thought, okay, yeah, I'm just gonna live here until like, you know, my year is up, because I'm nomading, and then once my year is up, I'll go qualify for a loan. Everything's gonna look amazing. My numbers are perfect. You know, if my if interest rates stay anywhere near where they are, my numbers are gonna be awesome. I'm gonna be able to buy this property. It's gonna cash flow like crazy. This is gonna be perfect, and I love the house. And then this happens, and interest rates go up, and you're like, ah, oh, I can't do it, right? Like, um, I'm really, really close, but it just didn't happen. So that's the hard part. Okay, so here's what happened. The rate changed, it went from about 3.55% on February 3rd, 2022, which is when they went under contract to 5.78%, so from 3.55 to 5.78% by June 16th, 2022. That was an increase of 2.23 percentage points. So it went from 3.55 and it increased by 2.23 percentage points, or a 62.8% higher interest rate that's crazy and that's the shock so their payment went from and this is just principal and interest their payment went from 1929 per month to about $2500 per month an increase of payments of 29.6% so their payments went up almost a third if you thought you were going to have close to break even cash flow nomading this property after a year or two but now you're going to be negative 571 per month that's shocking, right? You were gonna go buy a property, you were gonna be break even. You thought, hey look, if I'm able to get into this thing 5% down and I'm break even on this thing in a year, that's amazing. And now all of a sudden you like do it and you're like, oh, now I'm negative $571 a month. Like negative like almost 6000 $7,000 a year. That's pretty insane. And that was the problem. So that's why this class exists is I wanted to, while while this was shocking, I wanted to put some perspective on all of the things that can come up that are shocking about investing in real estate. Because this isn't the only thing that can be shocking to people. But then also to point out that this shouldn't have been like out of nowhere surprise. Yeah, interest rates went up and that was kind of a surprise and stuff, but to understand that interest rates were at all time lows and that it wasn't unreasonable for them to have gone up. And it wasn't unreasonable for a lot of these other things to happen. And then what I'm going to talk about is, they're not magic bullet solutions, but sort of like, what could you do to mitigate or to eliminate the shocks that could possibly come up? How can we get rid of some of these shocks? And so I'll go over, I'll give you a list of some things, and maybe you'll think of some other ones. Um, You know, it's the first time I ever taught this class, and so it might get better over time. But the idea is to kind of give you a list of the different shocks, and then talk about how we can mitigate and eliminate those things. this kind of like interest rate moving up, it's not, it's not a, a one-time anomaly. It does happen. And so these are the last one, two, three, four, five, six times that we had interest rates increase by more than 1% in a relatively short period of time. So back in October 1993 to December 1994, over a 14-month period, there was a rate increase uh, of 2.38 points. So not 2.3% in that it didn't go up 2%, but it went up you know, from whatever it was to uh, 2.38 percentage points higher than that. Okay? So home prices during that period of time, they went up 3%. So if you're wondering, hey, if these really if these significant increases in interest rates that we've had, do home prices drop? And the, the answer is no. So historically, in every single one of these cases, the interest rates went up. Uh, the, I'm sorry, the home prices went up. So it went up 3% for that period of time the the number of home sales did go down by 11%. So we sold fewer houses during that period as interest rates were rising. We sold fewer of them, but prices were up during that period. From January 1996 to September 1996, over an 8-month period, we saw a 1.2 percentage points increase of rates and home prices went up 2% during there. Home sales went down 2% though. So it means we sold less houses, but they went up in value 2%. Yeah, Ben. I think this is a 2% increase in home prices during this period. That's what I think it is. I didn't actually go compile the data. I got this, I think, from uh, Freddie Mac's website. Here's the address. You may want to go read like, their, their kind of like, uh, the analysis, how they uh, put it together. But I, my understanding is that it was 2% over that period of time. Yeah. And this wasn't a three-year period. It was only eight months. So it's January 96 through oh. September 96. It only took eight months for this to happen. And then it was over, it was 2% over that period of time. I thought it was 93, 96. I was just looking at the start date call. Yeah, so this is start to end, start to end, start to end. So this is the period of time that this rate change happened. And what happened to, to home stone price and sales during that period? I was just looking I flipped, flipped, flipped call. Yeah, yeah. Does that answer the question then, probably? Because yeah. I think that's, unless they annualize this, right? Which I think that it's just during that period. But it's possible they could have annualized it for all I know. Um, it didn't say annualized. Okay, so in October 1998 to May of 2000, that's a 19-month period, uh, interest rates increased 1.81 percentage points. And then home prices um, went up 13% over that period of time, and home sales went down 2%. Uh, June of 2003 to June 2004, a 12-month period, 1.06 rate increase, and uh, 13% increase in home prices, 2% actually increase in home sales during that period. And then June 2005 to July 2006, a 13-month period, 1.18 percentage point increase in the interest rate. Uh, Home prices went up by 7%. Home sales went down by 14%. And then November 2012 to December 2013, that was a 13-month period, 1.11 percentage point increase. Home prices went up 11%. And home sales went down 2%. On. Yeah, go ahead. What's our current one? I I don't know because I don't know if it stopped. So I think that they're waiting for that, but yeah. it's a lot because, I mean, even that this one. Like huge. <laughs> yeah, so our, our latest one was an increase of 2.23 percentage points, yeah. um, and it was over this period of time at least, right? Yeah. So February to June. Yeah. So that's pretty crazy, but it may not be done, yeah. and we need to stabilize. I'm not sure how they determine where it stops either because it's sort of arbitrary, you know, to a certain degree. So on average, it was a 13-month period for the interest rate to adjust. The, uh, the average uh, rate adjustment was 1.46%. Home prices went up on average 8% during those periods, and we saw a decline in home sales by 11%. So, which, if you look at this, right, it's not a shock, I mean, it shouldn't be a shock that this happens, right? It was a shock to them, because we weren't thinking about it, and you weren't weren't thinking about it, you went under contract, you're like, oh, maybe they'll go down, interest rates have been up a little bit from where they were in the bottom, maybe we'll get lucky and the rates will go down, and we've got, you know, we're far out from this 60-day period, so we'll just wait and see, but then, this shows you that we shouldn't really be that concerned. Do you have a question, Austin? I saw you looking. No, I was just speculating. I wouldn't, this is a guess, I wouldn't think it would be done currently because there's a potential still another hike coming. So until that we know if that's going to change anything or not, I wouldn't think that this go around this year would be finalized yet. Oh, I wouldn't say finalized. I was just thinking like our current number is bigger than any number on that list. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's peak the to valley too, right? Yeah. Maybe it's like they look at what the lowest was and the peak and they sort of determine where it was. It's hard to say. It's really hard to say. There's some speculation in the room for the recording about like whether we should use the current one now and whether it's going to continue or not. So we don't know. All right, any questions on this? So the idea, though, is that this is not like out of nowhere. You should not have known that this could possibly happen. It's happened before, six times at least. And maybe not to quite the extreme, but it's not that far off. Um, from what we've seen, and you know, we'll have to see what happens. Okay, so here's a quote from Dan Sullivan. Uh, basically, the quote is: If you've got enough money, to, if you've got enough money to solve the problem, you don't have the problem. And a lot of the issues that we're going to see are related to: If you're willing to spend the money, it's not really an issue, right? If you if you can afford the difference in the price, the monthly payments, um, or buy down the interest rate, or some combination of there too. It's really not that big of an issue. The challenge is, a lot of times, we don't want to spend the money, or we don't have the money. Um, And so we'll talk a little bit about that. Okay, so this is sort of a weird philosophy I have, and I've never heard someone explain it quite like I'm about to explain it to you, but I heard some slight variations on this. So if you have a variation, I'd be interested to hear about it, but here's this concept for me. You know, if I'm walking down the street, and I look down, and I notice my shoe is untied, It is not a big deal for me, right? Like I, I, Oh, my shoes untied, shoes with shoelaces get untied. It's not that big of a deal. So I expect my shoe to become untied because that's what happens. I don't complain to people. I'm not like, Hey guys, did you see this? My shoe it's untied. It's a real problem. Like this never happens. Like it's just crazy. Can you believe this happened to me? I was walking down the street and my shoe got untied. You don't, you don't complain to your fellow investors that your shoe is untied. You don't let it remain untied, frozen in fear, unwilling to do what is required to fix it. It's not like, hey, uh, what do I do? Like, my shoe is untied. There's nothing I can do about this. Um, what should I do? This is crazy. It's never happened before. And you don't swear off wearing shoes forever because they've become untied. It's not like, oh, last time I'm ever wearing shoes. This is a big deal. I'm just not wearing shoes anymore. I'm going to go get Velcro or I'm going to not wear shoes with shoestrings or something like that. I just bend down. I tie my shoe and I go on with my life because shoes become untied. And when when I use this analogy, it's like you want to get yourself to the point where all the things that we know that can happen with real estate is like your shoe becoming untied. You got to expect it. Interest rates go up. Prices go up and down. Rents go up and down. Vacancies happen. Roofs go bad. Air conditioners go bad. Tenants wreck properties. Properties values go crazy and they go up and you do really really well. You sell properties. You make huge profits I mean all these things happen both good and bad in real estate and they should not be a shock to you So the same thing happens with real estate investing these shocks will happen. You should expect them to happen You don't need to complain to everyone. You know that these things have happened You should not be frozen in fear when they happen You should do what is required to resolve the issue and you should not swear off investing in real estate because they happen so it's this philosophy of You've got to get to the point where mentally it's like your shoe got untied. You've got to trivialize it such that, okay, tenants not paying rent. I got to do something about that. I call up the attorney. We do the eviction or whatever it is that you do. You just deal with it. It's like your shoe gets untied. It's not a big deal. You got to just work through it. Interest rates go up. All right. I didn't quite get the rate I wanted or you're under contract. Uh, You know, you're more than 60 days out in new construction. You're like, oh, interest interest rates went down. That's good. It's like, you know, your shoe's automatically getting tied for you in some ways, right? It's like, th- good things happen to you. Does this make sense? Do you, do you, have you heard a version of this philosophy before where it's sort of like presented like this? Okay. All right. If anyone does, I'd be interested to hear about it. So, Okay, so non-shocks. So these are often shocks because you did not know to, and sometimes, expect them. Either you did not expect them or you didn't know to expect them. Uh, but you probably should come to expect them. A lot of things we're going to talk about tonight, they're going to seem like, yeah, that, that makes sense, but I don't always think about it when I'm doing the thing, and so I forget about it, and then when it's a shock to me because it happens, right? So this is thinking about things probabilistically, not this will always happen or this will never happen, but you know, there's a chance, a small chance, that this could be really ugly. There's a large chance that this is going to be fine, and there's a medium-ish, small chance that something could happen and it makes it you know, inconvenient where I have to bend over and tie my shoe, okay? So what are the chances you'll need to deal with this and what do you do if it does happen? And here are some examples of the shocks that we're gonna cover. All the contingencies you have in your contract, they're there for a reason. Things that you can terminate a contract on, that's why you can terminate, because sometimes you discover things while you're under contract that you were not as you expected, they're shocks to you. So we'll talk a lot about those. All the maintenance you have on properties, all the repairs you have on properties, and capital expenses that come with properties. Guys, roofs go bad. You should budget to have to spend $5, 10 $15, $50,000 on a roof. Whatever it's going to cost you to replace a roof, you got to know it's coming. You got to know ACs go bad. You got to know furnaces go bad. You got to know that flooring wears out. Kitchens get outdated or wrecked or destroyed by tenants sometimes. Bathrooms get destroyed. It's just, it's part of the thing. Your shoe becomes untied, roofs go bad right so you can't complain when you have a roof go bad you just have to budget plan and spend the money to replace the roof that's part of what you need to plan for all the property ownership issues people slip and fall you get sued neighbors complain they do irrational things they'll come over your house without you knowing without you expecting them all that crazy stuff so all the property ownership issues all the property management issues at some point, someone's going to claim that you treated them unfairly. Even if you do treat them fairly, they're going to feel slight in some way. Um, tenants are not going to pay rent sometimes. You know, even if you do the best job of screening tenants, you know, all these things are going to happen. I'm not trying to like be negative about it. It's just be a realist. Realize that this stuff occurs and you got to treat it like it's a shoelace. Like, okay, you know, I got to deal with that. I'm just going to deal with it. i going to tie my shoe and move on. All the natural disaster and accident issues. So there's going to be hurricanes, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be floods, there's going to be other stuff, the you know, things that you did not expect could happen to your property are going to happen. They could be small probabilistically, but they're possible to happen. Um, all the asset protection issues. So all the things about slip and falls and people suing you and, and you know, perhaps challenging, you know, your ownership of properties, um, multiple properties, or you getting in car accidents and people coming after you for that. All the stuff you deal with in normal everyday life, exists. So just be aware of that. So including all the different things we're discussing in tonight's class. There are reverse shocks as I've hinted at before. Sometimes shocks go in your favor. Home prices go up while you're under contract. Interest rates drop before you can lock in financing at a reasonable rate. The $10,000 roof repair you thought you were going to have to make when you're under contract to buy a property turns out to just be a minor patch job for 500 bucks that buys you five more years. The ancient looking air conditioner that isn't working is fixed with a simple service call for a few hundred dollars and it ends up working for another ten years. These things happen just like you buy a property when the air conditioning is working and it turns out you need a whole new AC unit just randomly, like it's the, the coils are cracked or something that you just could not tell while you're under contract. So good and bad things happen to you. Does that make sense? Okay. So here's the of class. Raise your awareness of what the shocks are. Try to give you some of the simple ideas of what's po- what the possible ways are to mitigate or eliminate them, and that there are no magic bullets or magic solutions to many of these shocks. It's not like I'm going to magically solve the, the roof issue or the interest rate issue for you. I'll, I'll tell you some tips on how I think about it, what you can do for it, but they're not going to solve all the issues for you. So just realize that up front, OK? okay so here's the class format we're talking about shock what it is and then how to mitigate and completely eliminate it if possible and then i use this abbreviation me instead of saying mitigate eliminate all night so um me is going to be an abbreviation on the slides that show the mitigation um elimination sort of slides okay so here's some general principles these are sort of things that in general help dampen the impact of any of these shocks okay so many of these are universally applicable to all types of shocks. Number one is reserves. You really should have reserves to invest in real estate. These will help mitigate the overwhelming majority of these issues. Again, if you have the money to solve the problem, you don't have the problem. If you have the money to replace the roof, it's annoying, but you got a new roof and now your property is good for X number of years. You know, if you need to replace an AC, just replace the AC. If you can afford to pay, buy down the rate and get it back there, you buy down the rate. Yeah, it's not ideal, you just do it though. If you want the property and it's gonna be a good investor for you long-term, you just figure it out. And if you want rates to do, when rates drop down, you can refinance again. So one thing is having reserves. Number two is work with experienced professionals that have navigated or at least been trained uh, to address these issues before. So be willing to pay for advice from your team, attorneys, accountants, CPAs, inspectors, property managers, real estate agents, brokers, the title folks, etc., cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you're willing to have people that have gone through this before and can help you navigate and understand, well, typically, here's how we deal with this, here are some solutions we usually use, or put it in perspective for you, I think that's worthwhile. Uh, Study history. So know what has happened in the past, and ideally not just the very recent past. As I showed you on that chart with interest rates coming down, they were really looking at, and I didn't ask them this, but I assume that they were really looking at that last five years or so, where interest rates were really, really low. And they're like, hey, look, we just came off a really, really low interest rate. Maybe these rates are going down again. But if they look back over a very long period of time, they would have seen that it's not unreasonable that the rates did what they did, right? And then have a backup plan whenever possible. So what is your plan if this happens? Maybe really low probability, but what are you thinking? And maybe there's things you can do now that will make it easier for you in the future should that come up. And then evaluate what your risk exposure is and determine what level you're okay with. If rates go up by half a point, am I still in? If rates go up by two points, am I still in? If rates go up by five points, am I still buying this property? Just evaluate what makes sense for you. What are you willing to deal with? What are you not willing to deal with? And then patience. I think this is part of the manage your expectations sort of philosophy. It's like, what's reasonable for you? Like, what do you expect to happen? Do you expect every property that you go to buy that you will have no things come up on inspection, or that you'll never have um, you know, a, a property go vacant, or you'll always be able to get the rent you estimated when you buy a property, or that rents always go up. You could always rent it for more than you rented it for the previous time. You know, managing your own expectations and knowing what it is. You don't hit home runs every at bat. It's not like every time you do this, everything goes perfectly and you score do what is within your, within your circle of control and let go of things outside your circle of control. They had no control over the interest rate. They did have control over whether they were willing to pay the premium to lock in that early. It, it seemed so expensive at the time to lock in whatever that was, six months ahead of time. But it was probably, in retrospect, not that they should have done this, but in retrospect, it probably was cheaper than what they ended up paying. That was within their control. And then remember this concept of expected value. If you've not heard this before, it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. Um, it's kind of like a math um, way of thinking. If you have aces, you're playing poker you know, and you've got two cards down. If you've got aces and someone else has 2-5 you know, offsuit, you have the odds in your favor if you have aces and they have 2-5. And if you kind of played out an infinite number of hands, more times than not, the aces will win. And so you have an advantage. Your expected value, your expected chance of winning with the aces is much higher than someone who has a two and a five in their hand. However, can someone who has aces lose? Yes. Yes, they can. So the idea is that they can have the advantage. Everything could be going their favor, but they could do, and they could do everything right, but they could still not have things go their way and they could lose. What's crazy to think about sometimes, though, is the two-five offsuit, can also do everything wrong and still win. right? They could go and play the hand completely wrong, but the cards that they get dealt in the middle of the table end up being three, four, five. And that's what's hard to understand. So you gotta think to yourself, okay, the odds look really good if I do these things for me to win. Not saying I'm guaranteed to win, but they look really, really good. And you gotta be careful because sometimes like with the 2.5 offsuit, you do the wrong thing and you get rewarded. You locked in six months earlier and paid the premium and that seemed like the wrong, it may have maybe even seemed like you were doing the right thing at the time and maybe that ended up not being the right thing and you could still end up that being correct if you had interest rates go up by 2.65% you know, over that period of time too. Okay, any questions on patients? So I'm gonna go over some different groups, the stuff before you buy a property, the stuff when you're under contract, the stuff post-closing once you own a property, uh, some things specific to selling and some extras. I think there's only one extra um, that I've gotten here. So that's the groups we're gonna do. So let's go over before you buy. And some of these, once I go over one or two of them, they're similar enough, we're gonna be like, okay, we already know that. All right, so you're out looking for a property to buy, you find an amazing one, you wanna put in an offer and maybe even do put in an offer, but you find out there are multiple offers. This could be a shock to you. If you've never been in a market where you have multiple offers on a property, or you've never bought a property before and realized that the really popular, very desirable properties sometimes get more than one person bidding on it, you may not be ready for this. Anyone who's kind of been buying a property in the last two years has been like, oh yeah, multiple offers here, we see 20 of them. But if you're, if you're brand new, you haven't seen that, it could be a shock to you. If you are looking for the best of the best properties, why would it surprise you that other people also like that property and want it too? So it should not be a shock. So here's the uh, mitigate or eliminate thing with multiple offers. If you are willing to, compete. Make strong offers that have the best chance of getting accepted. And I have a slide coming up uh, from a class I did called the 10 tips to get offers accepted in hot markets. Um, I'll kind of give you the 10 tips, but if you really want the two-hour version of that, go watch that class. And then the next thing when you're doing uh, multiple offers is work with a professional who is who understands multiple offers and can give you some tips for doing it. And again, you're not going to win every one of them. It's just, it's just impossible. If you have 20 offers on a property, which is an extreme case for really, really hot markets, 19 of them don't get it. And then know your market. Sometimes it makes sense to make a strong offer right away with short deadlines to avoid competing offers. You go see a property, you're like, okay, this one's really, really good. I definitely want this. I have a feeling it's going to get, you know, multiple offers on it. So I'm going to come in hot tonight. Uh, make an offer, tell them uh, I need an answer by 9 a.m. tomorrow. And you come in really strong with your offer. It has to be so compelling that they're not willing to wait to see what other people are willing to do. And so that could be a strategy. Or sometimes it makes sense to wait, let all the other people show it, let them put in their offers, and then call, have your agent call the other agent and say, hey, um, what does my guy, my guy really wants it, what does my guy need to do in order to get this one accepted? What, what do they need to beat? And, and they can tell them, go ask your seller, because sometimes you're not supposed to give, give away the information without permission from your seller, but go ask your seller, say, look, if you want the best offer, I'm willing to come in and make it happen. You just need to tell me what that number is. And so there's an incentive for the seller to tell you what number it needs to be. And it is impossible to always know which one of those options to go with. You can't know whether you should come in early or you can't know if you should wait, because there's some, maybe some agents or some sellers that are like, if it's a reasonable offer. I just want it. I want to get it done with. And sometimes it's like I want what's happening at the end. Okay. Can't see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. So, ten tips to get offers accepted in hot markets. So, this is from a two-hour class I did of the same title, um, and I'm just going to really quickly run through the list. But go watch this class if you want details. And we're sort of post-hot market as I teach this but it could come back later and then you definitely want to go review that class. So number one, 10 tips, um, price. So improve on your price. Number two, be willing to make up an appraisal gap. So if the property doesn't appraise, be willing to make up any difference or to completely waive that you need an appraisal at all. Um, Number three, use escalation clauses. So sometimes you'll want to say, I'll go $5,000 above the next highest offer. So you can actually use an escalation clause to increase your offer price to that. Number four, Call the seller's broker and find out what the seller wants in their offer to make sure you can match as many things as possible so that the seller gets what they want. Sometimes it's not always about price. A lot of times it's about price, but sometimes it's timing or um, I really don't want to move the pool table or, um, you know, I really don't want to do an FHA loan. As long as it's conventional, I'm fine. I've got concerns that I won't go at FHA or FHA or VA or whatever it is. So you got to find out what the seller wants. You do that by calling the seller's broker. Um, have your lender call and verify uh, and tell the seller's agent that you are qualified, you're going to close on the loan, that you're good to go. And make sure you have the best ideal loan for getting the job done. One that's um, going to be easy for that property to, to sell with. You can waive the inspection or do a limited inspection or do no, or uh, well, I guess waive do it. doing no inspection at all. But you can do things with the inspection to, to make it more attractive. Uh, you can look at what's happening in the neighborhood to make sure you understand what you're going to need to do in order to get that offer accepted. If all the properties in the neighborhood are selling for 10% above asking price and you're coming in at list price, it's going to be hard for you to get that offer accepted. Uh, earnest money. So you could increase how much earnest money you're putting up with a deal. I think that sh- signals some strength. You could also make your earnest money non-refundable so that if you don't close for any reason, you don't get it back. That's a stronger offer than saying, I've got these contingencies and if I can't get my loan or the inspection comes back weird or something else happens, then I'm gonna get my earnest money back. That leaves the seller in a little bit less secure position. No conditional sales, so you do not need to sell your property before you buy this property. And then in some cases, especially when you're an investor and you're willing to buy more than one property, being willing to accept the backup position because a certain percentage of the offers that do get accepted fall out And if you're in backup position, there is a chance that you will not have to be in a bidding war again, competing, that you'll just by default be in first position and get the offer accepted. So that's my quick list of 10 tips to get offers accepted in hot markets. Any questions on those? All right, sweet. All right, cash offers. So you're making offers. We're getting loans to purchase the property but you keep getting beat out by cash offers. For some people, this is a shock. They're like, hey, look, I'm offering 10,000, 20,000, $30,000 over asking price, or maybe you're just asking in full price. Um, you know, whatever it is, you're, you're making really strong offers, but they're not accepting your offers. You're like, what do I need to do? I offered $30,000 above asking price, and you wait 30 days and you see the property close, and it didn't sell for $30,000 above asking price, but you were getting a loan, and the person that bought it paid cash. So you're seeing that you're being beat, beaten out by cash offers. What do you do about that? That's a shock for some people, by the way. They're like, why is this happening? It's frustrating. So same stuff for getting offers accepted in hot markets. Do as much of that as you can. You might also evaluate whether you're willing to pay the cost to use a service that allows you to make cash offers. There are services you could pay a fee to where you can then come in and they buy it cash and then you actually refinance out of it for some form. They'll vary a little bit depending on how they're structured, but that's the basic idea. Are you willing to pay the premium to make it a cash offer? Then maybe you don't need to go $30,000 over. Maybe you just need to pay two points or three points on a cash offer deal, okay? Any questions on this? All right, limited accessibility. So either you can't schedule a showing, something about the property, they are not allowed, they're not letting people in until a certain day that you can't make, or they're not letting people in at all because of a certain situation going on with the property, or they have very limited time in the property when they're, for example, we only are allowing 15 minute showings. One person at a time This happened during COVID, you know, 15 minute showings at a time. We can only have one person in the property at a time at all. And, you know, we're only doing showings between, you know, noon and four o'clock when someone's, you know, able to take the dog and they're not at work. And so there's a really limited time and you only have 15 minutes in the property because there's like people booked directly behind you and everything is packed and you can only see the property for 15 minutes. Sometimes it's hard to make a decision on a property in 15 minutes. Sometimes you know, but sometimes it's tough. Or you must see it with other buyers, agents, tenants, or sellers present. There are other times you're looking at a property and the seller insists that they be there. Or the tenants are there because they will not allow you to be in their property without them being present so you don't go look at their room that they're growing weed in or something like that. Or there are other buyers there, you know, it's an open house. And you know, that's the only time you can see the property the only time they're showing the property or there are other agents there. Or especially with multifamily properties, this happens quite a bit. You can't see all the units before making an offer. They'll tell you, you can see unit one and unit seven. Unit one is just like units one through six. Unit seven is just like units, you know, seven through 15, but you only see two units. The other ones are in different condition. Some better, some worse. But you can only see two before you make an offer. So that could be problematic. But this can be the norm in some markets. right? It can be, especially in different market conditions where it's a really hot market, or maybe it's based on property type, or just that particular property is kind of a weird one. Um, But that could be pretty typical for what you're expecting. But it could be a shock for some people. So see it as it is, but not worse than it is, Tony Robbins. So how do you deal with this issue? How do you mitigate it? How do you eliminate it? Keep your ability to fully inspect the property. And by inspect the property, I mean yourself and or any professionals you hire. Inspectors, you know, termite guys, you know, like all, like uh, radon, like all the different guys you want to come in and do tests as part of your offer. So don't give up your rights to do this testing if you're going to do that. But if you have to be competitive, sometimes you have to be willing to say, okay, well, I'm only going to do a limited inspection, even though I didn't get to see the whole thing originally. So you want to get a multifamily property bought in a really hot market. Sometimes you're like saying, well, I'm only going to do a light inspection. I'll just do a walk through the other units, but we're good. I I know what's going to be there. I've done enough of these. You gotta be willing to kind of accept that risk if you need to do it and then evaluate what your reasonable exposure is and what the probability is that that will happen and bake that into your offer. Say, look, you know, I've seen enough of these at this point. There probably are some ones that need a full kitchen remodel, probably some that need a bathroom remodel. So I'm out at most, whatever it is, $15,000, $20,000, whatever number you put in for your remodels. And, And so that could possibly be the case. And I can't imagine every single one of them is going to be like that. So let's say half of them are. And so you could say, you know, there's probably a X percent chance that that's the case. So I'll go ahead and bake that into my offer. I know that I'm going to possibly have to come out of this. If it's better than that, great. If it's worse than that, yeah, I got a little worse of a deal. Okay? Any questions on limited accessibility? All right, not having all the information. So you're wanting to make a decision whether you're going to make an offer or not, but you don't have all the information you need. Maybe you're missing HOA docs to be able to tell if you can use it as a rental or that you could park your RV or. you know, put a little ADU additional, uh, you know, accessory dwelling unit back there. Uh, Maybe you're missing solid rent comps. You're just unable to get rental comps for this particular property. You really want to call your property manager. They're not open until Monday. It's Friday night, you're looking at this property, you just can't get it to make a decision. Or maybe you're missing property financials. This happens all the time with multifamily properties. You want to get financials for the property. They're like, yeah, you'll get them when you go under contract, but we're still preparing them and I don't have them. And we already have 14 people looking at the property in the next two days. Gotta make a decision. You're missing info on the condition of parts of the property you're unable to see. Snow is on the roof, tenants in one or more of the units. It's a hoarder house. You can't see like past all the boxes and garbage. Like there's times when you will not have the information you need in order to make a decision. So how do you deal with, how do you mitigate or eliminate this lack of information? It's rare that you'll have all the information you need upfront, especially with multifamily properties. You need need to move forward to get more information, like going under contract, but keeping key contingencies. So if you're like, look, I really want to see the financials. Well, make your offer subject to you getting these financials and being able to terminate the contract if you can't get them. And again, you got to weigh this. If you ask for so many contingencies, it may make your offer weak and you may not get it to begin with. So you got to balance this act of, hey, look, I'm making an offer. Um, I'm not demanding that I have the financials, but I really want to see them but I'm moving forward regardless of what they are. And then you make your decision based on that. And sometimes doing things like what I just suggested of moving forward, but getting the information later comes at a cost. Paying for an inspection, paying for an appraisal, paying for professional opinion or advice on a property that you may ultimately not end up buying. That's part of the buying process. You're gonna pay some of those costs and sometimes you're not gonna end up buying the property. And sometimes you buy with incomplete, or sometimes inaccurate information. So sometimes you buy a property and you never get the information from the seller. You're guessing. It's incomplete history. Or sometimes they give you information and it's wrong. They tell you, yeah, the HOA allows RV parking here. And you come to find out that that was not correct. Or Airbnbs. That's another good example. All right, so try to evaluate what risk you're likely to have and what risk you might have and decide if you're willing to take that or not. In some cases, you might be risking the cost of inspections, the cost of appraisals, and or your earnest money. Most contracts most contracts are gonna be written as what we call earnest money contracts, which means if you don't perform, you and the seller agree, if you don't perform buying the property, that you and the seller agree that they get to keep your earnest money as liquidated damages for you not being able to perform. So if you put up $5,000 as earnest money, and for some reason you're unable or unwilling to perform and buy that property, they keep the $5,000 and that's what their reward is for you not performing. However, there are some versions of the contract where you could check a box or you could write it differently and it becomes specific performance, which means you and the seller agree that if you don't buy the property, they will sue you and force you to buy the property or force you to pay damages. And it's not just $5,000. Okay. So the risk is if you have a specific performance contract and you don't perform, then you could have a lot more responsibility or obligations to the seller than whatever you put up as earnest money. So from a seller's perspective, if you offer them a contract that's specific performance, that may encourage them that you're really serious and that you're willing to perform, but it comes at a pretty significant risk to you. So depending on how it's written, it may be more than just the cost of the inspection or the appraisal and your earnest money if things really go south and you have to terminate or give up on the purchasing of the property. It may be that you're forced to buy it and then you gotta deal with whatever issues that made you not wanna buy it to begin with and then maybe you sell it or maybe you keep it, okay? Any questions on this lack of information? And that, that does apply to like more than just this, like if you're trying to terminate a contract and it's specific performance or earnest money, it's not limited to this one idea, it's just in general. I just finally got to it. Does that make sense everybody? Okay, cool. Is this helpful for folks? Okay. All right, so we covered all the stuff before you're under contract. Let's talk about being under contract. Changing interest rates. That's what started this class, especially with long closing windows like new construction. It could also be you choose not to lock for some reason. You know, you end up with a 60-day closing because that's more convenient to the seller. And so you say, that's great. And you're like, hey, look, I think, I mean, we got an election coming up. I think rates are going to drop after this election. Um, and so, I'm going to not lock, because once I lock in, that's it. So, you're like, I'm going to wait. All right, let's see how that goes. Maybe you're not sure of the lender you're going to use. You know, and that may be a reason why you're not going to lock. You're calling to say, hey, look, I, I've been, I got calls out to four different lenders. I want to find out what's going on. You do this over the weekend or you do this where there's a uh, a Fed, you know, as like a a hearing or whatever they do where they kind of announce what's going on and they usually announce that they're gonna raise rates or lower rates and it just happens to be over the time when you're shopping all your different lenders. Or maybe you're required to switch lenders while under contract and have to relock. You go under contract, you think you're gonna use a lender, they get a little farther into your file and they, they realize, hey, we can't do your loan. You've got XYZ problem and you know our underwriters saying no, even though they should be saying yes, or we have, a, we have an overlay that prevents us from doing these types of loans, or you need to go to a special lender to deal with this, or I'm not, I'm not qualified to do this special situation you've got going on. And they say, you gotta to go to another lender. And now rates are different. All these things can come up. So changing rate. what do you do to mitigate or eliminate this? You consider locking rates as soon as possible. You consider paying the extra fee to lock farther out. They could have paid the fee and got the higher rate. And, and I think a lot of times, if you look back historically, a lot of times that would not have been worthwhile. They would have ended up not really gaining from that. In this case, it would have been worthwhile, but we didn't know that. It's hard to tell in advance. Some builders may offer long-term locks or incentivize financing when you go under contract. So it could be an incentive of the builder You know, you go under contract today, you can lock in your rate with our builder lender and it's good through when you close. That's just part of our program. Uh, Beware of variable rate loans, adjustable rate mortgages, and loans with balloons. So adjustable rate mortgages are mortgages where the interest rate can change a lot of times they're fixed for two years or five years or whatever it is and then after that they can adjust sometimes they adjust once and they're fixed for another five years sometimes they adjust every month sometimes they adjust every six months sometimes they adjust every year depends on which version of the adjustable rate mortgage you have and then uh, loans with balloons a lo- a balloon on a loan means you're going to pay on a loan for 10 years or 20 years and at the end of the balloon period then the entire balance of the loan is then due So you might be paying as if it's a 30 year loan, but it has a 10 year balloon. So the payments look like you're going to pay off the loan in 30 years. But by the time you get to year 10, they're like, okay, you now, owe, you know, 300,000 of this $400,000 loan. We want the full $300,000 in full on year 10. And then you got to either refinance or pay the $300,000 and get out of there. And not every lender will automatically refinance your loan. Sometimes you may have to change loans, sometimes the interest rates change significantly between that 10 year point and the other 10 year point. So it could be a real problem for you to get out of there at that point. So anytime you take on a variable rate loan or a loan with a balloon, this opts you in to additional potential shocks in the future. If you get a 30 year fixed rate loan or 15 year fixed rate loan where the entire loan is paid off, it's amortized over that period, 15 years or 30 years or 20 years or 40 years, whatever it is for you, most common is 30. If you get a fully amortizing loan, you opt out of this additional risk. You have the option to refinance if you want to, but you are not obligated to have that additional interest rate risk then. Because it's, it's gonna be paid off by the time that period is over for you, whether that's 30 years or 15 years. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, ideally, when you go under contract with these, keep the financing contingency in. So don't, you know, negotiate, negotiate away your ability to cancel the contract based on your financing. But a lot of times in order to get offers accepted in really hot markets, we were saying, you know, we'll waive that, you know, I'm definitely getting this property and I'm buying it. And something I don't have in my, um, written down here, but I just, it just occurred to me sometimes with new construction, we will pay a whole bunch of money that is non-refundable upfront in upgrades that if we cancel for any reason, including an interest rates change or financing changes, we're out that money. So sometimes you'll go and you'll be like, okay, here's the base house, but I want AC. I want you to put in a backyard fence. I want you to upgrade the flooring from the normal really crappy vinyl to something a little bit nicer because I'm gonna be living there for a while first. And I want you to put in a refrigerator and everything else. So be like, okay, great. We're totally willing to do that. It'll cost you this amount of money. And we'd like an extra $10,000 in non-refundable earnest money for us to be willing to do those upgrades for you. If you do not close on the property, you don't get that money back. That's pretty common, okay? So realize if you cancel now because interest rates went up, then you're out that additional money. So it could be a lot more than just regular earnest money. So getting back to this point, ideally keep your financing contingency in your contract so that if this does happen, then you're minimizing how much you spent up to that point to be able to get out of it if you decide you do not want to move forward. Um, another point here, if you could lo- not lock now, and now if you could not lock and now you can't make the numbers work, you may need to terminate. So if for some reason you were unable or unwilling to lock, and now the, later on the rates don't work for you, you may need to terminate or try to renegotiate if applicable. So you've been under contract for a while. Maybe the market softened a lot where the builder's having some struggles getting things under contract. It's possible they may come in and say, look, we really want you to continue buying this property. What if we gave you $5,000 to buy down your rate to help out? It's not going to bite it down to what it was, but maybe it helps you a little bit. Maybe negotiate that. Or maybe it's with a seller who's like, look, the market's very different than when you went under contract with me. I really want you to close this thing out because I'm going to buy something else. I've already got 1031 things picked out, or maybe I am moved and I've already bought my new property, but I really need to get this thing sold. How about I knock off $5,000 or I pay $5,000 in seller concessions to help buy down your rate or something. You couldn't renegotiate if it's possible to do that. Of course, if you do cancel for some reason, you might be at the cost of any inspections you did, any appraisal money you spent to that point to get the appraisal done, any earnest money if, they, if you're outside of your ability to cancel without uh, getting your earnest money back, and maybe some other out-of-pocket costs. Beware of specific performance contracts as we discussed before where you are telling them that you guarantee that you're buying the property, otherwise they can sue you to perform and force you to buy or force you to pay damages. Any questions on this? Uh, a general question not yeah. related to this, yep. but um, what's the average amount of time for a new construction to be completed in area? It varies, so um, it depends on the builder and how backlogged they are. Some builders will actually build spec homes where they're, they're building them in advance and you could buy within 30 days. And then other builders are such that you know they have not broke ground yet on the property, and other ones they're in different stages where they say, look, you know, these five we've already dug foundations and they're going to framing. These are already framed, and so depending on which one of those you buy, could be a different time. You know, and and, and some of the other ones where they haven't dug ground yet, it could be like, hey, you know, we're going to get to this one, but it's in phase two, and phase two is not going to start for three months, and then it's going to be you know six months from when we actually do that. And so it could be really long time. Right. But, uh, you- you only get 60 days for lock-in rate for the loans. That's correct. A lot of times you are limited to how far out you can lock unless you're willing to accept a higher interest rate or pay a fee, or both. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah, so there are, I mean, th- there's trade-offs when you're doing this. Do you pick one that's going to be ready in 30 or 60 days and think that, you know, I want that? Or is there something really special about this lot that you really want this one and you don't like the models they have on the lots that are there, you know, maybe it faces the wrong direction for you. Maybe it's only a couple of bedrooms or maybe, you know, the the prices are different. I mean, there's all sorts of variations as to why you might wait. So it's really tricky. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Any questions on this? Sweet. Inspection issues. So in most cases, you'll be inspecting the property after you go under contract, often with the help of your team, home inspector, for example. Uh, Sometimes this might also include disclosures from the seller, including due diligence documents like leases or property disclosures where the seller tells you everything that they know about the property, at least in theory. Uh, Might also include things you might discover during the same period, like survey issues. So you, you say, look, you know, that shed looks like it's really close to where I thought the property line might be for the neighbor. We probably should get a survey on this property or you know, this fence looks really janky as to where it is. Maybe I should check and have a survey done to see if the fence is really the property line and stuff like that. And sometimes you have a survey done and it's wrong. You know, the, the shed you built or the deck you built is on someone else's property or their deck on your neighbor's deck is actually on the property you're trying to buy. And it's potentially problematic or shared driveways get kind of weird. In some cases there's all sorts of weird stuff that can come up on this. And sometimes you don't find that out until you're under contract. And a lot of times you've already paid your inspection fee at that point. because so you've inspected the inside of the house and you paid the survey guy in order to come out there and do this and you paid for your appraisal, even if the appraisal wasn't done yet uh, because you kind of prepaid it with the lender in order to get a jump start on it because there was a shortage of appraisers and you wanted to make sure you got your spot in line. And so now you're out inspection, survey, and appraisal for a property that you may be terminating on or that you got to negotiate on. So that could be a shock to you. You just got to realize that up front. Okay? Uh, there are going to be things that come up on a property on inspection so this should not be a surprise to you you are going to find things on the inspection that's what the inspection is for okay the inspection is to get a second set of eyes a professional professional's eyes or two or three depending on whether you're going to bring in specialists for other things like radon and asbestos and meth and um mold and all things like that you might get more than one um, inspector's eyes on it, or as a professional, maybe even contractors give you opinions about think what things are gonna cost and what things need to be done for certain issues you may see on the property. So you're gonna have these things done and you're going to find things that you did not know. You'll be like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm glad you told me that that's gonna cost $20,000 to fix. Now you know. Typically you're not gonna be negotiating things you saw or discovered before you made your offer. So, if you saw that there was no kitchen sink, you should not be negotiating for a kitchen sink once you make your offer. You saw it, you made your offer based on not being a kitchen sink there. Does that make sense? And that goes for a wide spectrum of things. Uh, okay, that's it. And, and even with the inspection, sometimes you're una- your inspector is unable to do something. Like, it snows around here, and sometimes the roof is covered with snow, your inspector cannot inspect the roof when it's got covered with snow. If you're buying a property and you have a really limited inspection window, unless you extend out the ability to, to inspect it for snow later or something like that, or sometimes it's under snow for 30 days, thats not as much right here, and it's highly unusual. But if that's the case, that's problematic. You may be buying a property that you've never seen the roof for. Okay, so how do we mitigate or eliminate these? Uh, reasonable expectations. If you're buying a 20-year-old property and the roof's never been replaced, you or your team should realize it's gonna need a new roof soon. Just makes sense. So for you to be surprised by that, or shocked by that's problematic. Keep your ability to terminate and negotiate in a contract. Might be out of the cost of an inspection, maybe an appraisal in some cases, maybe earnest money depending on how you structure it, but you wanna make sure that you have what you need to be able to negotiate these things if things come up. If it's not something acceptable to you, even if the seller could or would address it, then with the advice of your team, terminate. So make sure you understand like, what the repercussions are. But if you're like, hey, look, even if they did move the shed, I, there's something weird about that. I don't want to be involved in it anymore. Or whatever. You know, If they could fix something that you had an issue with, then you have to make that decision. And then um, negotiate legitimate shocks, not just trivial things. So realize that up front. Any questions on inspection? can't qualify for a loan so you're about to buy a property you're getting a loan ideally you got pre-qualified with a lender a quality lender before going under contract ideally more qualified than them just telling you but you telling them hey I make this much money I have these debts they say it sounds like you can qualify for about a $500,000 house that's not the level of qualification I'm talking about I want them to pull your stuff I want them to put you through the system I want them to tell you that provided you can get me this this and this then you're qualified and you say I could definitely get you this, this, and this, and you're very confident you can do that. That's the level I'm talking about. Maybe even more if you're able to. While under contract you discover you no longer qualify for the loan. So something happens that prevents you from getting the property. And it could be any number of things. Credit change, you know, something happens to you where you know a medical bill you thought you paid pops up and all of a sudden it's not done. You're like, this is problematic. It's gonna take me a little while, a little time to get this fixed out and work through it, or maybe I don't have the money to pay the bill anymore or whatever. Uh, Your income changes, you know, maybe you get, you know, what's the opposite of promoted? Demoted, you get demoted and you get put in a lower position job or something like that. Or you have to change jobs, unfortunately, while you're under contract, you have a loss of job or something like that. If you have a significant injury or an accident that prevents you from working, you get divorced while you're under contract to buy a property or you have a death of a spouse, these types of things can happen, and they could change your situation and prevent you from getting the loan. So, if you can't qualify for the loan, how do we mitigate or eliminate that? Prevention. Work with quality lenders up front that can qualify you ideally before going on a contract. You don't want just some fly-by-night lender telling you, yeah, you probably can qualify for about this, and then you find out later you cannot. But even then, occasionally something unexpected will come up. So, Especially for things that may be more likely for you, for example, job loss when you know your company has been downsizing. What's the backup plan if that should happen? So know in advance. Hey, if for some reason I do get downsized, I'm terminating. Or you know, we're going to have mom and dad cosign, or whatever. Whatever your backup plan is for you. Or at a minimum, what's the cost to me if this happens? And am I okay with that? You know, what's it going to cost me in inspections and in appraisals and um, there are some cases, it's very rare, where a lender will eat the appraisal if for some reason you don't, you don't qualify for the loan. It's pretty uncommon, but in some cases they do. I know of one credit union around here that does. Actually, I know of another bank that does too. There's two banks that I can think of that do that, but I don't think of anyone else. Do you know of anyone else that does that? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty uncommon. So be super careful about that. And You could lose your earnest money. Um, sometimes there are deadlines for you to object to being able to get acceptable financing, and sometimes that deadline will appear days before you're closing. So imagine for a minute, they say, hey, look, your loan objection deadline is um, you know the 25th of the month, and we're closing on the 30th of the month. So there's a five-day period when you cannot get your earnest money back if something happens to you. If you lose your job in that five-day window, you don't get your earnest money. Because your last day to object to you not being able to get the loan is the 25th but your closing is set to be the 30th. So if you get in a car accident, get injured, get divorced, something happens to you or your job, credit score changes significantly enough, you know, all those things get impacted. I had a client once, was under contract to buy a property and they, um, they got married while they're under contract. And when they went down to the bank to open up a joint checking account, so they're buying the property together, it was like, you know, they're getting married, they're gonna buy a house. Um, went down to the bank to open up a joint checking account and the banker very innocently and to help them, I'm sure said, uh, would you like overdraft protection on your checking account? They're like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do overdraft protection. So they went and did that. They opened up by getting overdraft protection. They got opened up a new line of credit. It changed their credit score enough where they barely qualified for the loan because it actually gave them a hit to their credit score. So be super careful. Um, talk about that. All right, cool. So what happens if you can't get insurance on a property? You know, sometimes you can't get insurance at all. You go to buy a property and you realize this is uninsurable, not able to get insurance at all. More commonly, you might not be able to get reasonably priced insurance for the property. You'll you'll call down to insurance and they'll be like, hey, so uh, this is a weird property and it's got ABC going on with it. In order to get insurance, it's gonna be three times what you thought it was gonna be. You're like, whoa, that is expensive. So be aware that that can happen. Um, sometimes properties are in flood zones, and they, you might not know they're in a flood zone. It's not like there's water on the ground in flood zones all the time, right? It's flood zones because it occasionally gets flooded. So flood, and flood insurance can be expensive. It might be more expensive than you thought it was going to be based on location, age, composition, history, something like that. So be aware. I want to hear fire Fire. So they they could not insure them because they're in some type of fire area where like forest fire or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking about location, but yes. Yep. Yeah, so how do you mitigate or eliminate this risk of can't get insurance? You can check with your insurance agent before you make an offer. I'm not sure I would go to that extreme, but you could. I mean, that's one way to mitigate or eliminate it. Uh, Sometimes you still run into the unexpected though. They give you a quote, they get something, then when they finally formally submit it, something weird comes up. Uh, most lenders require insurance if you're getting a loan, so are you willing or able to buy the property for cash if you can't get uh, insurance on the property? And is it that good of a deal? You could also try in- alternate insurance providers, other insurance agents, especially ones that do more unusual policies. So I had a property once that I personally bought, and I don't remember the details, this is probably 20 years ago at this point, um, but there was some really weird thing where I was unable to get insurance on it, and I had to go to like one of these really obscure insurance agents to get the policy on it Um, and it was a little bit more expensive it wasn't that bad it was probably like 50% more than what I was expecting it to be it wasn't a deal killer but it was unexpected it was unusual so realize you might need to go to some weird insurance company to do that won't appraise you're under contract to buy a property at a certain price you hire and you pay for an appraisal usually you've already had your inspection and pay for that as well at this point you might also have committed to other expenses like paying for a moving truck and/or storage units because you're getting ready to move. Maybe you close with a buyer who is purchasing your property that you were living in and now you're living in a hotel with friends waiting for this house to close and you get to the end and it doesn't appraise. So the property is not appraised for what you're under contract to buy it for. What do you do? You could negotiate with the seller to try to come to terms with an acceptable price for both of you. And it depends on the status of the market and whether they had 19 other offers behind you as to whether or not they're willing to negotiate that. Might mean you're paying more than appraised value. So they may say, look, it was $20,000 under the, uh, the, the purchase price is $20,000 above what it appraised for. How about we split the difference Well, you're paying $10,000 more than appraised for, and how does that work out mathematically down payment wise? you gotta come up with the 5% or 10% or 20% or 25% of whatever the appraised value is, plus the difference. So if you agree that you're gonna pay $10,000 above appraised value with the seller, you gotta come up with 25%, if you're buying it as investment property as an example, of the appraised value plus the 10K more. Are you willing to do that? Are you able to do that? And if you can still terminate based on appraisal, you might be able to get your earnest money back. If you're like, hey look, um, I don't want to buy this property because it appraised for thirty thousand dollars less um, than what we're under contract for. So I think I uh, I want to cancel. And so you paid for inspection, probably paid for the appraisal, but probably can get your earnest money back if your deadline is still there and you're able to do that in a contingency. Yeah. Can you also get another appraisal? In some cases, you may be able to get another appraisal. That can really vary, right? appraisal it can. You could also contest the appraisal. Yeah, sometimes you could say, hey, look, you use really bad comps. These are not comparable sales. Yep, those are also, also good. Mitigate, eliminate options. Some, is FHA, I think FHA sticks with the property. I think if you have an FHA appraisal on a property, I'm pretty sure that sticks with the property for like six months or a year or something like that. Talk to your lender to get details. But uh, certain appraisers, certain appraisals will stick with the property, um, even if, you know, you go and try to hire another lender to do it. Um, with conventional financing, I'm pretty sure they do not. As of right now, and this could change. Lending policies change all the time. OK, title or HOA issues. So you're under contract to buy a property. You negotiated to have the right to review the title work with your attorney and the HOA documents. While you're reviewing the title work and the HOA documents, you discover something unacceptable in the title documents or HOA documents that prevent you from doing what you want to do with the property. For example, having an RV, or being able to do short-term rentals, or being able to have rentals at all, or something like that. Or that you feel could impact you when you've got to resell the property later. So maybe it's not something you're worried about, but you're like, hey, that's going to be a problem because this property is sort of built for X, and it turns out you can't do X with it based on something in title or something in the HOA documents or something like that. So something comes up where you're unwilling to do this. As a side note, this is like one of my little weird pet peeves. Is your real estate agent competent to review title work for you? Are they trained on how to review your title work and tell you what is going on with it, whether there's a problem in there or not? The answer is no. We do not get trained on title work. Title work is a attorney type thing. It's a legal thing. So your real estate agent is not qualified. So you should not rely on your real estate agent to review your title work. All right, so how do you deal with uh, mitigate and eliminate title HOA issues? So in some cases, the seller could do something to solve the issue. You can negotiate with the seller to try to come up with terms that are acceptable to you to fix or mitigate the issue. For example, if you thought you were going to be able to park an RV on the property, but the HOA says you can't, then would you be okay with an X dollar discount instead? That could be a possible solution. If you could still terminate based on title or HOA, you might be able to get your earnest money back often out the costs up to this point, whatever that is, inspection. Uh, appraisal, etc. Any questions on this? Cool. All right. Post closing. What if you can't get rent? Can't get the rent you thought you were going to get. You bought a property with the intention of renting it, traditional buy and hold, short term rental, nomad, whatever it was. You now own the property. You've already gone through closing everything you've got in hand, but you can't quite get the rent you thought you were going to be able to get. That's a shock, right? I thought I was going to get $2,000 a month. Can't get it. Maybe it's 1800. Maybe it's 1500. Lower than expected. The market's softer than expected. Maybe you just, you know, fewer people applying. Uh, maybe it's poor time of year. You know, you've, you've got a property and you're trying to rent it over Christmas. You closed right after Thanksgiving and now you're trying to rent the property between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Good luck. It's a soft time of year. You get poor feedback from the previous tenants or guests. Maybe you got really bad ratings on Airbnb for that. Maybe you got, um, you know, there's a new website comes on where tenants get to rate the quality of the properties, or maybe that exists in your marketplace, and you got really bad reviews. Could be a problem. So how do we deal with this? We evaluate all the different ways to improve cash flow on rental properties from another class I taught how to improve cash flow workshop, how to improve the cash, how to improve cash flow workshop, the class. So, I'll, for the sake of time, I will, Talk about a couple of these, but I'm not going to run through them all in detail. Um, there's a two-hour class on this literal thing, and there's a checklist for it. But things like subdividing your property into multiple units to get more rent than you thought you were going to get, renting upstairs and downstairs separately, as an example, renting by the bedroom or bed, uh, rent parts separately like garage, community pool, RV parking, RV and backyard, add services like high-speed internet. It's not interest. It should be internet. Uh, offer the property to a tenant buyer on lease option, lease purchase or agreement for deed to increase income, reduce maintenance, charging pet rent, charging fence rent or carpet rent, they want a new carpet, you charge them extra rent in order to pay for that, or extra rent for something else the tenant desires that you install. Um, let's see here. Maybe change the term of the rental agreement, daily, weekly, monthly, basically go from a long-term, year-long lease with monthly rentals to a uh, short-term rental in order to increase rent. Maybe charge weekly or bi-weekly instead of monthly. Uh, include done-for-you services like lawn care snow care removal house cleaning for an extra fee can i convert it to a duplex triplex or fourplex or more can i rent out the property furnished to get more rents can i start making start marketing earlier and start a higher more aggressive price to test prices so all these different things there's a couple slides on this so um, go watch that two-hour class i'll put a link to it in the show notes but um there's a lot of stuff you could do in order to increase rents on that all right next one undisclosed issues you find out about undisclosed issues after closing. So you buy the property, you close, you're all excited, you walk with your keys, you go pull your car into the driveway and you get there, and the neighbor comes over and is like, hey, I am so glad you bought that meth house. We were really concerned it was gonna be another drug dealer coming in, I'm so glad you guys bought that. And you're like, what are you talking about? This was a meth house? Oh my gosh, I didn't know that it was a meth house. That's a real problem. So you find out about something undisclosed after your closing. The seller may or may not have actually known. Maybe the seller didn't know it was a meth house. Maybe they were an absentee landlord and they were just oblivious and, you know, they thought the calls from the police were just uh, solicitations for raising money for the police fund um, when they were really calling to say, hey, you know, you got people serving meth or dealing meth out of your property. Um, the inspector may have missed the issue. So it's possible, you know, the inspector did their best, but they couldn't see it or didn't know to look or, just overlooked it or just hiding or something like that or maybe you may have assumed it was a small issue when it turned out to be a more expensive issue so you, know, you thought this is gonna be a $500 fix because you've had that issue in the past before and it didn't cost that much but now they're like oh no no this is not a $500 fix This is a $5,000 fix or $10,000 fix we got to go in the walls and rip stuff out And you're like whoa can't you just do this you're like nope it's beyond that can't do that so some common ones might be repairs or unable to use it the way you intended those are like the big groups. All right. So uh, definitely getting, how do you you deal with these? How do you mitigate or eliminate these? You definitely get inspections done to help reduce the chances of this happening. Not saying it won't happen, but it definitely reduces chances. Get bids from contractors for repairs you're unsure about and maybe even ones you think you know how much they'll cost because with inflation I'm finding that prices are way up beyond what I thought they were going to be. Okay. So if you thought, hey, in the past, I had this done five years ago, it was X number of dollars, but now it might be 2X or 3X in some cases. This reminds me of a really funny story. So I um, bought my first house, uh, had a wood-burning fireplace in it, and so I'm um, uh, talking to my father-in-law um, about buying um, um, wood, like, like wood for the burn, for wood-burning fireplace. And I was like, oh, it came in these logs, I gotta cut it up or something like that. He's like, oh, just go buy a chainsaw. I'm like, how much does a chainsaw cost? He's like, I don't know, 13 bucks, 14 bucks. I was like, what what year did you buy your chainsaw in? He's like, I don't know, 78, something like that. I'm like, it's gotta be over $100 for a chainsaw. So, you just never know with inflation and stuff. All right. Get advice to your professionals about uh, being able to use the property as you intended. Typically, the seller is not responsible for making sure that you can use the property the way you desire. You could think, hey, I'm gonna do this as a short-term rental, the seller is not responsible for making sure that you can use it as a short-term rental. You are. So you gotta do that research and find out, make sure that you can do it. All right, what happens if the seller or the tenant won't move out? And this could be at the time of closing, or it could be something that happens after you own the property. So you buy a property, and now the seller won't, or the seller or the tenant won't move out. So you're supposed to get the property vacant, you, um, you do your walkthrough right before closing, and you go in the property and there's still like, at least one or two days of stuff to be moved out of the property. Like you're like, they hardly moved anything. Like, uh, we're going to closing in an hour. Are you going to be out of here in an hour? And they're like, Oh, I don't know. I might need a little extra time to do that. That's okay. Right? How do you deal with that? You walk through the property before closing to make sure they're out. Ideally evaluate if you're willing to close with them still in there. If they're not out, might be hard to negotiate and still close with the same loan on the same day. It's tricky, right? If you have a loan, all the paperwork's done on the loan, and all the money's listed out, can you just have the seller give you $2,000 to close on the property? Not without the lender knowing and approving that. It's possibly loan fraud. It's It's an inducement to buy the property from the seller that the lender does not know about. So you need to get permission from your lender to be able to do that. Good luck trying to do that in an hour and getting those documents approved again. So you gotta figure that out, it's kinda tricky. Um, Make sure you understand eviction laws and how they might apply to your situation beforehand. So go talk to an attorney if you think this is anywhere possible, a remote chance or something like that, or your property manager or both. Um, And then get professional help from the attorney for evictions to make sure it's done promptly and correctly. Um, You don't want to go like Wild West this and kind of try to make it happen. You really want to understand what you're doing. Any questions on these? Kind of shocking, right? Be able to do that? Oh, apparently I must have missed one of the slides. So underinsured or not insured for some things. So not all things can be easily covered by insurance. But many investors, especially newer investors, may shop solely by insurance premium and not compare coverage to understand what's covered and what, what's not to some extent. So the thing is, you go and you call three different insurance agents and they say, okay, you know, your policy is going to be $1,400, your policy is going to be $1,200, your policy is going to be $1,100, the three ones you call. You're like, oh, well, I'll go with the $1,100. That sounds like the best one. Maybe not. Maybe the $1,100 one didn't cover sewer backups into your basement. Uh, or only covers um, personal injuries on your property to $500. And now someone gets in an accident on your property, they slip and fall, and their medical bills are five grand, and now you're coming out of pocket $4,500. Well, that $300 that you saved doesn't look so good now, does it? And that's the difference between some of this stuff. So you have have insurance, but you opted to choose a less expensive insurance policy, it's limited coverage for an actual claim, or it's not covered at all. You gotta make sure you understand what you're buying and what you're covered for. And apparently I didn't do any things in there, so just, I think I covered it though. All right, what about price or rent drops? You buy a property, you typically don't see price drops or rent drops on properties you're under contract with, since the market tends not to move that quickly in a way that you can easily measure right you're not you're under contract for 30 days typically you're not gonna see a price drop or a rent drop in that particular amount of time uh, while you own the property the price drops or the rents drop so change your strategy to one that has longer-term perspective convert a fix and flip to a long-term rental as an example so if you're if you bought a fix and flip and you're buying a property and for some reason you're unable to sell it for the profit margin you wanted maybe you decide to convert it to a long-term rental Hold it for a year or two until you have the profit margin you want, and you fix it that way. Okay. Uh, change the use to improve the value. So you were using it one way, long-term rental, and now you change it to short-term rental. Use long-term leases, still likely to have issues when the lease is up. So if you use a year-long lease and rents drop, you've got a rent fixed in for a year. But at the end of that year, if rents had gone down, they may drop, and you may need to adjust it down at that point. But it'll keep you propped propped up for a year. And then go watch that class on how to improve cash flow. They'll talk about other strategies for dealing with rent drops in there. Any questions on this one? Cool. HOA restrictions. HOA won't allow your intended use. You can find out after you buy that your HOA won't allow for rentals. Could be that they change their policy after you own the property. So this has come up for some clients before, so it's kind of important. Let's say you you bought a property and... uh, you plan on using it for a rental and while you own the property, the HOA gets together and all the different members of the HOA vote to change the rules of the HOA so that now you can no longer do regular rentals or short term rentals or something else. That's potentially problematic. And in some cases they may have to grandfather you in if you were already using it that way, but maybe they don't. You should definitely know the rules around you for what that could be. So read through your HOA docs is how you mitigate or eliminate it. Read through the HOA docs carefully before buying often done while you're under contract. It may also be done prior to making an offer, but it's often not practical. Most of the time, they're not giving you HOA HOA docs to read before you go under contract. Most of the time it's done afterward. Uh, You may not have access to them until you're under contract and you may need to act quickly on in demand properties just to get your offer accepted. Get the help from your attorney interpreting them if you're concerned. Your real estate agent is not reading all these HOA docs. So you should be reading them and getting the help of an attorney if you need help interpreting them. We're not trained on that. It's not like we get training on interpreting HOA covenants. Uh, What about loan call due? Oh, this is an interesting one. I put some uh, slides i would never put in a presentation before here, so this will be interesting for you guys. Uh, Loan call due. So you, you decide you want to buy a property, like buying it subject to or maybe even on a lease option, as you'll see here in a second, or You move it into a LLC after you buy it for asset protection reasons. You know, things like that where you're like, you don't think it's a big deal, but now the lender's like, wait a minute. You now triggered this due on sale, due on transfer clause. What happens if the loan gets called due? Oh, that's pretty interesting. So let's take a look. How do you mitigate or eliminate this? You understand and get advice on the Garn St. Germain Depository Institution Acts of of, uh, 1982 which discusses loans being called due talk to an attorney about it before doing these types of creative deals and asset protection strategies. And I want to be hundred percent clear. I'm specifically talking about buying properties creatively where the seller leaves their loan in place and you take ownership of the property, buying the property subject to the existing financing or where the seller has the loan existing in place. And you agree with the seller to wrap the financing where they get part of the payment and then part of the underlying loan is paid or and this is the part where you really need to pay attention, or you own a property, you got the loan, and you decide to move the property into an LLC. Okay? Uh, so have a backup plan, be able to pay off the property, refinance or bring it into partner or refinance. So that's one of the things to do. Now I'm going to talk to you about the Garn St. Germain Depository Institution Act of 1982. There's a link on here with this, with this on here. But uh, since you guys are not going to go read it, I'm going to explain it to you. Okay? Because I want you to understand what this covers and what this doesn't. So this is 12 U.S. Code 1701 J3, preemption of due-on-sale prohibitions. This is all about due-on-sale clauses. Definitions. For the purpose of Section 1, the term due-on-sale clause means a contract provision which authorizes the lender at its option, they can do it or not do it, to declare due and payable some secured by the lender's security instrument if all or any part of the property or any interest therein securing the real property loan is sold or transferred without the lender's prior written consent. So if you actually sell or transfer in the property without the lender's written consent, this is what this applies to. The term lender means a person or government agency making a real property loan or any assignee or transferee in whole or in part of such a person or agency. The term real property loan means a loan, mortgage, advance or credit sale secured by a lien on the real property the stock allocated to a dwelling unit in a cooperative housing corporation or a residential manufactured home, whether real or personal property, and the term, the residential manufactured home, means a manufactured home is defined in section blah blah blah, which is used as a residence. The term state means a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm gonna ignore that line. All right, so let's get into this. The loan contract in terms governing execution or enforcement of due on sale options and rights and remedies of lenders and borrowers, assumptions of loan rates, section one, Notwithstanding any provision in the constitutional laws of any state or the contrary, a lender may, subject to subsection C, enter into or enforce a contract containing a due on sale with respect to a real property loan. So they can enforce this. Except as otherwise provided in subsection D, the exercise by the lender of its option pursuant to such a clause shall be exclusively governed by the terms of the loan contract. So basically the terms of this are in the the document itself and all rights and remedies of the lender and borrower shall be fixed and governed by the contract. So it's in the paperwork you sign a closing. In the exercise of its option under a due on sale clause, a lender is encouraged to permit an assumption of real property loan at the existing contract rate or at a rate which is at or below the average between the contract and market rates and nothing in this section shall be interpreted to prohibit such, like, such assumption. So basically what they're saying is, Hey, if you're taking a property over subject to, The lender is encouraged, according to the law, to permit you to assume the loan at a rate that is at or lower than what it is. Okay? They don't have to, though, but they're encouraged to. All right. There's a bunch of stuff in here. I'm going to see where I want to start reading. I'm going to skip some stuff, but... So it talks about the dates that these come into play, basically any stuff before 1982, which is no longer really relevant. So I'm gonna skip that part. It says uh, respect the properties originated in national banks or credit unions, that's what it applies to. Um, does not apply to, it does apply when they have successors or transferees. So here's, here's something interesting. So does not apply pursuant to subsection. A lender may require any successor or transferee of the borrower to meet customary credit standards applied to loans. So they may require you to have a credit report and and apply to the loan and the lender may declare the loan due and payable pursuant to the terms of the contract upon the transfer uh, to a successor, transferring of the borrower who fails to meet such customary credit standards. So if you don't qualify for the loan to assume it, the lender could say then all of it's due. That's their solution. A lender may not exercise its option pursuant to a due-on-sale clause in the case of transfer of real property, which is subject to the subsection where the transfer occurred prior to that date. I probably didn't need to read that one. Okay, that's good. Here we go, though. This is where it gets really crazy. Okay, here's where the exceptions are. Exemption of specified transfers or dispositions. Have you guys ever heard this concept? Like, if you're going to go buy a property subject to or you're going to move something to an LLC, you know, as long as you kind of do it into a trust everything's good to go right we're gonna see about that we're gonna see about that all right so um the lender may not exercise its option pursuant to the due on sale clause upon one the creation of a lien or other encumbrance subordinate to the lender's security instrument which does not relate to a transfer of rights of the other occupancy of property so if you get another loan on the property you get a second mortgage does not trigger due on sale Two, the creation of a purchase money security instrument for household appliances. You get a loan to buy household appliances, does not trigger due on sale. A transfer by device, dissent, or operation of law on the death of a joint tenant or tenant by its entirety. Someone dies, they transfer ownership of the property, that's exempt. The granting of a leasehold interest of three years or less. If you rent the property for three years or less, that does not trigger the due on sale clause. However, I'm gonna continue reading. Not containing an option to purchase. If you do a lease with an option that triggers the due on sale clause, says it right here. If you do a lease option, it triggers a due on sale clause, a transfer to a relative resulting from the death of a borrower. So you die, you want to give it to your kids. That's cool. doesn't trigger the due on sale transfer where the spouse or children of the borrower become an owner of the property. That does not trigger the due on sale clause. A transfer resulting from a decree of a dissolution of marriage, legal separation agreement, or from an incidental property settlement agreement, which by which the spouse of the borrower becomes an owner of the property. You get divorced, one owner owns it or something related to that doesn't trigger it. A transfer into an inter vivos trust. This is what we were talking about, right? A transfer into an inter vivos trust in which the borrower is and remains a beneficiary and which does not relate to a transfer of rights of occupancy in the property. So yes, if you transfer into a trust where the seller still is the beneficiary of the trust, that does not trigger the due on transfer clause. But what does you transfer into a trust? And then that trust's beneficiary is someone other than the original seller, the original owner of the property that does trigger it. Any other transfer disposition described in regulations prescribed by the federal home loan bank board? Isn't that crazy? Now you've read it. Now you know. Um, Doesn't that just dissolve all asset protection? Yes, right. So here's the thing. So the question was, does that just dissolve all asset protection? It's super interesting to think about because if they transfer ownership to another entity, because an LLC is another entity, that is by design what the LLC is set up for. It's not you. You are not that LLC. You're trying to set up a legal entity that is not you. So if you transfer it from you to an LLC, you have transferred ownership, right? So what does that mean? It means that the seller can choose, at their option, to do due on sale. The, the, lender. the lender can, yes. It's, it's not, they're not obligated to, and you don't see this happening very often, But I want you to understand from a shock perspective, because this is the class for it, right? That, hey, if you have a property you transfer to an LLC that you got a regular like conventional loan on and had a due on transfer clause and you do this, don't be surprised (laughs) that it could get called due, right? That's the point. And doing a lease with an option agreement could also trigger it. Doing a lease for more than three years could trigger it. Right, a three-year term—that's what it said. Crazy. I see some confused looks. Is this like the first time you've ever heard this? You know, can you negotiate with? The, can you tell your? I mean, I guess my question is: <laughs> is can you just Tell your lender, or do you just hope it doesn't happen? Can you? The question is: Can you tell your lender? I, <laughs> I think the correct answer to this one is: You need to talk to your attorney, and you need to have your attorney explain to you the risk and. I suspect, I'm not an attorney, not giving you legal advice. I suspect most attorneys would say, this never happens, move it into an LLC, it's not a big deal. But you've read it now. I'm, I'm not making this stuff up. I wouldn't write it like that to just arbitrarily make something up for you. This is like from, where is it, Cornell Law, the address is on there. www.law.cornell.edu forward slash US code forward slash text forward slash 12 forward slash 1701 J 3. Go look it up yourself. You can read the code directly from their website. This is it. Okay? So, I'm not going to read this last page because it's not germane. But you guys now see what the issues are. Okay? So, when you see it online, it's not a big deal, blah, blah, blah. Now you know kind of like you're playing in this gray space and you understand it well. All right. So, selling. Any questions on that? I kind of abruptly ended, but. Surprise! You guys got to learn about do-on-sale clause. Shock. Whatever it is there. Interesting, right? It's kind of fascinating. because so I knew you guys would never go read it, so I wanted to read it to you. It's this, really, it's this gray area of, do I really read you a co- like law code in a class? And you guys are like, ah. But then there's some really interesting things that you have to like, you wait for. it. It's like, OK, the buildup's there. But where is he going with this craziness? Well, this is where it's going. OK, so selling. What if you're selling and you get no offers? That's a shock for a lot of people, especially when you're used to getting 20 offers. You're trying to sell your property, you're marketing it or hired a professional market for you, and you're not getting offers on it. So how do you mitigate or eliminate that? Increase your marketing, improve the desirability of your property, and I define that as change the price, improve the price in some form or another, improve the condition of the property, make it more desirable for them to want to buy it, or improve the terms or financing available for the property. Those are really the three levers you can pull, right? You can increase exposure, get more people looking at it, and hopefully you find the one that wants to buy it. You can change the price to attract more people to it. You can change the quality of the property itself, or you could change the terms upon which you're selling it, or the financing is another way of saying that. So you could bribe them to get better financing. If they couldn't afford the $2,000 a month P&I payment, you could pay $5,000 to buy down their interest rate. Now it's $1,900. Now it looks more attractive. That type of idea. Any questions on this? Buyer backs out. You're trying to sell a property, you got a buyer on the hook, they're under contract to buy the property with you. What happens if they don't go through with it? You're marketing property sale finder buyer, the buyer backs out. So mitigate or eliminate this, realize that your negotiating power diminishes significantly once you go under contract, and it shifts largely to the buyer with their contingencies. Your strongest negotiating position is before you accept an offer. So try to negotiate as much as you can before that point. You lose a ton of power once the buyer goes under contract and they have all their normal contingencies in the contract. Then the power shifts to them. And that's especially true in markets where the contract is written very pro buyer, like Colorado, as an example. In some markets and market conditions, a property falling out of contract can stigmatize the property for some future buyers. They say to you, what was wrong that this buyer fell out? Why is the property back on the market? What's going on with it? And so you have a stigmatized property. Now, if you have 19 other offers behind the one that you accepted, that's less of a deal. But if it's a soft market, it's a much bigger deal. Make sure buyers are qualified and able to perform before going under contract. Do as much of your checking before you accept. Call their lender. Verify that they can actually get their loan. Verify that they're a strong buyer. Try to feel out the, you know, see if you can read between the lines and the paperwork as if they're gonna be a pain in the butt and ask for a ton of things on inspection or be really nitpicky about stuff or, you know, like if a buyer comes in, and this is gonna sound horrible, but. If a buyer comes in and then the additional provisions, they list out 14 other things they want you to do as part of you accepting their offer, that's a sign that you're gonna have some interesting challenges with that buyer, right? You just know that's not normal. You're not usually seeing that. You know, Seller to sweep the garden of the extra leaves before I take possession. Okay, I mean, you're sort of telegraphing, I'm a troublesome buyer. I, I've, got, I've got some demands. And in some markets you may still choose to accept that offer because you don't have anyone else, but got to realize that going in. All right. Any questions on this? All right. Conditional transaction chains. So the buyer's offer is contingent on them selling their home. Usually, but not always the buyer's property is already under contract. So in some cases, the buyer goes out, they find, they find your property, the one that they love, and they're like, I didn't know that I was gonna find the property that I love the first time out. We were going to list our property for sale in the spring, but we really love your property. Will you go under contract with us now so that I could buy your property and we will have our property in the, on the market in a week? That happens. They really love your property, and now you gotta decide, man, do I really wanna have my property tied up while this other seller now, the buyer for you, goes and tries to list their property and tries to get it sold. And they don't even have it on the market yet. Well now you're like, well what price are you gonna put it on the market and what's it worth? Is this thing gonna sit on the market for six months while my property's tied up? I really want mine sold. So you gotta make some of those decisions. And then your buyer's buyers terminate their contract. So imagine for a minute the the buyer for you comes in, they say, I really want to buy your property. You're like, okay, um, what's the situation? You're like, well, we have a buyer already on our contract and we gave them, uh, they gave us 60 days to be able to close on it. So we can close on yours in uh, you know, 43 days because that's how long we have left to do it. So you're like, okay, I accept that. But now their buyer for some reason on inspection or they can't get the loan or whatever, they terminate. But they were gonna use the down payment from the sale of theirs to buy yours. That's potentially problematic. So evaluate the strength and likelihood that your buyer's buyer will close on the property. You got to really look back at this and say, you know, how how sure are they going to close? Are they past inspection? Um, You know, how qualified are they? Can I talk to their lender? But you want to do all this before you accept their offer because then you lose negotiating power. Understand this extra risk. This should not be a shock. If you accept an offer like this, you really should make sure. And they would be able to get their earnest money back because they're the other person's buyer or yours. Yeah. is it? Cause that's part of the condition. Yes. So the question was, can the buyer who's under contract with yours get their earnest money back? And yeah, if they have a, if they have, they have a contingency in your contract that says, you know, I'm planning on buying this thing and if I can't get my loan, because they now, now they don't have the down payments, or they, maybe they can't qualify with two mortgages, they may be getting out on loan or they may be getting out on the contingency they have for you. So you gotta be super careful about this one. Uh, consider other buyers before contingent buyers when possible. If you've got two buyers interested in your property, you may want to pick the one that doesn't have a contingency, even if it's not as good in some other areas, because this is a pretty big risk in my opinion. Try to eliminate this contingency as early as possible. Or it might be very difficult to do this, and it might be really difficult to do this, but maybe negotiate compensation if their buyer fails to perform and they terminate on you. Say, look, I'm, I'm willing to wait and work with you, but if this current buyer fails, you need to put up an extra $2,000 hard because I'm making decisions is going to cost me more money in order to hold this property and have it off the market for you because I got to move out in preparation for you buying this one and I got to go buy something else. Maybe you then go under contract on something else and it's problematic for you. So the time to negotiate this is when they're hottest, when they're most excited about going under contract on your property, not after you get them under contract and they thought I won. Right? You want to do this before you sign and do it. You want to negotiate these things, but it can be really hard to negotiate—really, really hard. Especially if you don't have anyone else interested in yours. Right? It's really hard for you to say, "Oh, we don't have anyone else. Why don't we just accept this one?" And you know, and the thinking is, if they don't buy it, we'll just—you know—someone else will come along. And we'll keep it, we'll keep it available for showings, and maybe someone will come along and do it. But the chance of someone coming along and being in a backup position is relatively small. Not a lot of people are wanting to shop properties that are already under contract in some form, unless the market's hot, then they might. Okay, any questions on this? Cool. Extras. So I put one here about 1031 exchange issues. If you're trying to compete at 1031 tax deferred exchange, you might be trying to buy a replacement property or to sell a property that you've already selected a replacement property for. So you're like, hey, look, I really want to buy this new building. Um, I'll have to go sell my old building in order to be able to 1031 exchange into this new one, and I'm trying to work that out and the timing of it. It's higher stakes in a lot of cases because there can be significant tax consequences for you. It's not just all the other stuff we've been talking about. It's all the other stuff we've been talking about. Plus, now you might have to pay taxes on something that you didn't think you'd have to do. And it's capital gains tax and uh, depreciation recapture tax if it's a rental um, for whatever period of time you held it, plus if you have any rollover from previous 1031 exchanges. So... Um, It can be something that shocks you. Sometimes it's an issue with timing, especially with new construction. You know, you you try to buy a new construction property as one of the properties you're 1031 exchanging out of. And for some reason, the builder delays. You know, the contractor's there or there's construction delays or supply line delays or something like that. You thought I was going to be easily be able to do this. And now you're pushing up against a deadline or maybe you're over the deadline. Uh, Sometimes it is an issue with inspection appraisal or other contingency where you're like, I really don't want to proceed with this because I've got this other stuff going on. So how do we mitigate or eliminate this? Uh, Get a contingency on your replacement that the sale must go through or you can cancel and get your earnest money back. So when you're about to go buy something else, tell them I'm doing a 1031 exchange. If my other one doesn't close, I'm not buying this one. And I want that contingency up and through as far out as I can get it right so that you know, or at least as far out as the other one's supposed to close. Maybe more if you can. Uh, Carefully consider your replacement property or properties. Make sure that you evaluate those as the probability of being able to buy those and whether they look like they're definitely going through or this kind of iffy one or whatever you got going on there. And work closely with your 1031 exchange intermediary, the company you hire to do the 1031 exchange, to discuss what this looks like if things fall apart. Either your buy side or your sell side or whatever. Make sure you have those conversations to understand how they usually deal with it. It's like that expert advice sort of thing, right? And then make sure you have a backup plan because some of the consequences for this can be huge. If you owned a property for a long time, it's appreciated a lot. Tax t- tax bill could be pretty significant for these. So we're not just talking like, you know, I gotta, I gotta pay $500 extra a month on a rental property because the interest rate went up. This is the, can be order of magnitude higher, orders of magnitude higher. Right? All right. Any questions on this? Otherwise I'm gonna do conclusion. So, most of these shocks, if you think about the shocks we went through tonight, right? Should you have should you anticipate most of these? Is there anything in there that's like that's really a surprise? No, once I told you what they were, they were like, yeah, I mean, this makes a lot of sense. They're they're they they should be anticipated. You should see them, you should understand that these are likely to happen. Now, what probability, what's the chance of them happening? Could be really small, could be very common, right? So you gotta understand like where we are with that. But getting getting professional advice and guidance and having reserves can help mitigate most, if not all, that we're likely to experience. Can you see that why having reserves can just say, okay, yeah, that's annoying, but if I want to do it, I'm still going to do it because it's it's just a little bit more money. And sometimes it's just money at different times, like the roof. It's not like you didn't have to do a roof. It's like you know a roof's coming, just now I had to do it at a time that was inconvenient for me. Uh, study history to better understand what can happen. So it's helpful for you if you can look back and say, hey, interest rates have been a lot higher than where they are now. The chance of this thing going up from here is really high. And knowing that that's a real risk for you. Okay. Any questions? Was that helpful? Kind of a crazy class? Surprise? Surprise is all sorts of stuff. I really like that uh, do on sale thing. I think that was pretty cool. No one goes and reads. They just say, ah, you know, on the internet, they say if you do a trust, that's how you get around it. Ah, don't ignore what the law actually says. Just do the trust thing. Okay. All right, cool. No questions? Awesome. Thanks for coming, guys. I do appreciate it. I will see you all next week if you're coming. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Lubbock is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Lubbock that wants to help our real estate investor listeners,